Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 201 of the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining us today for Food as Medicine for ADHD and Autism, where we will be talking about supporting optimal neurological and behavioral health in our children, as well as all the way through adulthood. So in today's episode, we will cover primary irritants to avoid in the diet, as well as foods to focus on, and some of the root causes of imbalance, including gut health, detox pathways, and micronutrient deficiency trends. Yes, and if you're hungry for more, we covered this topic about a year ago, episode 138, with guest Dr. Emily Gutierrez uh, out of Austin, Texas here, and the topic was autism, ADHD, and functional pediatrics. So definitely go over to check that out. But as Becky mentioned, you know, our approach with functional medicine is always seeking the root cause. So in today's episode, we will be talking about toxicity. You know, there's a huge trend that we hear of with heavy metal toxins and the autism spectrum. We will also be covering nutrients like the importance of glutathione and the drug nutrient interactions of many of the stimulants and first line of defense that our children are being put on at a very vulnerable age, which can interfere with the way that their neurotransmitters work, create cytotoxicity, and even addictive tendencies all the way through adulthood. And we know that we can see psychosis and really severe mental illness with use of chronic long-term methamphetamine stimulants. So today we'll have a lot of information about alternative tools, weaning processes, and you know, food as medicine perspective of why this happened in the first place and how we can truly resolve. Yes, and I think in just about every kids episode that we do on the podcast, we talk somewhat about behavior and the link to food and blood sugar control as well. So those will be good resources that we'll also link in the show notes for today. Yes, and I was going to say along that vein, Becky, you know, as I always say with toddler, my experience with now a four-year-old and prior, even as a clinical dietitian and then an outpatient dietitian, I think that really the number one behavioral influencer is blood sugar regulation. Mm -hmm. And we always say that hanger, right? That blood sugar crash and that, um, you know, anger and aggression and irritability short fuse can be felt even in adults. So getting off that blood sugar roller coaster is going to be the first step. And even if you as an adult are just looking at enhancing cognitive function, you're definitely going to learn some helpful tools today. Totally. So before we dive into it, let's just have a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Santa Cruz Medicinals. Yes. So Santa Cruz Medicinals provides a potent and affordable CBD brand. Excuse me. Um, They provide these high dose formulas because they note that microdoses of CBD are not strong enough to get efficacy and outcomes. They have lab tested reports. So that with the samples that they sent to me, I was able to click on as the consumer and see that they were hundred percent free of THC so that these are safe formulas that you can use for that cannabidiol in the work environment. Um, we know also that they are going to provide the potency based on that third party testing and that there are no harmful volatile volatile compounds in the extraction process. So this is really a product I can stand behind when I'm looking at potency and dosing as well as purity. They also use really clean carrier oils like MCT oil, coconut oil, and olive oil, and incorporate CBD-infused food products for more passive use, as well as topicals like the CBD-infused lavender clay mask, which can reduce inflammation, which is the root cause of redness and also how the pathology of acne spreads. So really fantastic, cool outcomes. When we're talking about the world of neurological health and especially cytotoxicity or the influence of stimulants burning out our cells, CBD is something to really strongly consider because, you know, the body has an 
endocannabinoid system and these CB1 and CB2 receptors respond to CBD when it is provided as a concentrated oral dosage. We can see in clinical research impact on the HPA access and reducing inflammation in the intestines. We can see influence in a randomized double-blind crossover trial with blood pressure regulation and CBD oil. And we can see the role of cannabidiols in managing pain as well as behavior. And this can be linked to anxiety. And we do know that CBD can upregulate GABA, which is that calm down inhibitory neuro compound. And we'll talk in today's episode how that's a key element for both autism spectrum, especially when we're talking about tics and physiological stress response, and ADHD, aiding in that concentration and focus. The problem that I see on the market with CBD today is that this is kind of a cowboy interest, uh, industry, if you will. It's not very well regulated. So I was really happy that Santa Cruz Medicinals provides us the opportunity for that third-party testing. Also, potent formulas. So many of the products on the market, Becky and I will laugh, are like five milligrams. Oh, yeah. or like gummies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and so they actually provide the challenge that they recommend you take 100 milligrams of CBD a day for a week and record how you feel. Kind of like our probiotic challenge, but I think that that's the best way to know if it works for you. Um, And we usually recommend dosing somewhere between 33 to to 70 milligrams a day. So that is a higher dose to really notice efficacy and then you can kind of work your way down and see your sweet spot to make sure that you're actually getting outcomes in your body. So go on over to scmedicinals.com. That stands for Santa Cruz Medicinals. scmedicinals.com. Put in the code AllieMillerRD at checkout and start experiencing potent formulas that work with your endocannabinoid system. Super cool and excited to dig in on the application of CBD in ADHD and autism at some point in this episode a little bit as well. Um, But before we get into maybe the areas of, of food and root causes, let's just talk a little bit in general about the rise of diagnosis of ADHD and autism spectrum disorders and how these conditions are managed conventionally. Yes, I always like to start with a little bit of shock and awe (laughs) before we go into the what we can do about it and why it's happening in the first place. So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD and autism can often look a lot alike. Um, There are some overlapping trends most definitely, and that's why we decided to take on today's episode as a comprehensive neurological mood disorder support. Uh, We see in either condition that children can have difficulty with focusing, and we can also see impulsivity or a difficult time with restraining behavior and also outrage and a difficult time communicating or connecting with others. We can see this influencing schoolwork and relationships namely. And although there can be similar symptoms, they are distinctive conditions. So autism spectrum disorders are a series of related developmental disorders that can affect language skills, behavior, social interactions, and the ability to learn, whereas ADHD impacts more the way the brain grows grows and develops. And you can have, again, an overlap of both of them. So when we look at the way that diagnosis is being done, um, there's often going to be surveys or assessments, and this often starts from a complaint from the parent or the teaching or you know staff at daycare to the parent about the behavior, and then often a first visit with the pediatrician. And when we think of like ADHD, this is a chronic condition that affects millions of children, and it often does, as I mentioned, persist through adulthood because often we're just symptom managing versus really trying to look at the root cause and, and resolve. So So we can see with ADHD, uh, difficult with sustaining attention, hyperactivity, impulsivity. Often this pairs with low self-esteem, struggles with interpersonal relationships, dynamic changes in the household. So this is a time with pandemic really to be aware as parents that you'll possibly see more of an influx of these types of behaviors because of the stress response that the children have been under. And um, we can see this also having a big impact on the way that they intake food. Um, Often we can see more like binge-like tendencies or over-restriction and not getting that um, clear feedback of satiety, if you will. Okay, and then with 
autism spectrum disorders, oftentimes we'll see more of like a lack of connection socially. So, you know, lack of eye contact from an early age or, you know, maybe delays in speech from an early age of a child. And um, we can also see high engagement on the other hand, when they're on a topic of interest. So maybe it's like cars or planes or trains I see oftentimes. Um, And that can kind of mimic the ADHD response of more attention seeking or nonstop talking. Yeah, especially with like Asperger's disorder, we can definitely see more of that for sure. Yeah, so let's talk um, kind of the differential in diagnosis and, and treatment. Sure, so there's going to be an assessment of pattern of behaviors over time, and um, they there will be basically these checklists that are made by the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. The most updated edition is the fifth edition, and this will help in determining within the autism spectrum what type of disorder may be seen, but this is really a broad umbrella heading. Um, There's really no one-size-fits-all way to deal with ADHD or autism. The big distinguishing variable, though, is that there tends to be an earlier onset of autism than ADHD, which tends to be more behavioral-oriented. Both of them do have neurological influence, however, um, but the autism is often more of, like you said, Becky, that disconnection or um, a neurological influence that will impact beyond behavior and verbal communication. Okay, and then in terms of therapies um, on both ends of the spectrum, uh, behavior would be one place, and, and I think oftentimes kids will get referred you know, to speech therapy at an early age or referred out for assessment and then intervention in terms of the behavioral aspect. Yes, and especially because of the with the autism spectrum, there can be more of that vasovagal. They may be more prone to being children that were dealing with tongue tie or mm-hmm. issues with latch. So absolutely, you'll definitely see more speech pathology or occupational therapy in that perspective. Um, but both ADHD and autism should be dealt with a behavioral therapist or a psychiatrist or psychologist, at least um, a coach that can help them in the ritual establishment, transitional times, as we've, as we've spoke to in prior episodes of those kind of trying areas that would stress a child. And then that's when you'll see the higher influx of the uh, sensory integration and the high stress response, which can be seen through kind of more tics or flare-like response. And then in terms of medication, um, there'd be a difference here between autism and, and ADHD. Usually we talk more, I think, about the ADHD type of drugs. Yes. So for autism, there are actually only two on-label approved drugs, um, but I will link a really thorough deep dive article, which I read through in preparation of today's episode, looking at you know what's being prescribed, what's the, the rates, and what are the side effects. So the, the two on-label drugs that are approved are um, risperidone, and this is a second-generation antipsychotic drug. It is recommended that behavioral therapy is the first line of defense for young children under the age of five, but starting at age five, often they'll start with drug therapy right away with behavioral therapy, which to me as a parent sounded young, truly, Um, especially knowing that there's still so many growth jags and leaps and situational changes that can impact, you know, your, your child in all of these areas that they're being assessed. Um, so the, the risperidone, again, is a antipsychotic drug. It was uh, first uh, one that was approved by the FDA for autism-related irritability, and um, it is approved for ages five and up. The side effects that we can see include headache, dizziness, drowsiness, tremors or twitching, uncontrolled uh, muscle movements, agitation, anxiety, and a restless feeling, depressed mood, dry mouth, upset stomach, diarrhea, constipation, weight gain, and then also we can see rhinitis, uh, more stuffy nose, sneezing, sore throat, and cold-like symptoms. And then I was surprised to see Abilify as the other antipsychotic in this kind of group of, of drugs that are recommended. Yeah, so Abilify is a, a psychotropic drug, and you know this was brought in in 2009 to be approved for also treatment of autism starting at age six of age. 
And, um, you know, this is the same drug that is used for schizophrenia, bipolar one disorder, major depressive disorder, and Tourette syndrome. Uh, the mechanism of action is really unknown with this drug, but it's likely some impact as a partial agonist uh, on the dopamine type 2 and serotonin type 1 receptors, and also an antagonist of the um, 5-HT2A receptors. And there are a whole classification of side effects that we see with this drug as well. And like you mentioned, it, it seems to be a little bit of a heavy hitter, if you will. Um, so we can see dizziness, lightheadedness, drowsiness, weakness, nausea, vomiting, and upset stomach. And the concern is then often what is prescribed in the autism spectrum, which is the main go-to for ADHD, is some form of a stimulant. Um, because as you heard, both of those drugs, the number one side effect is drowsiness mm -hmm. and fatigue. And so now the child's putting their head on the desk. Now they're, you know, even further um, dissociating or, you know, not tuned in. And so now we want to hype them up from from the sedative effects of these uh, psychotropic or antipsychotic drugs. So the, the next kind of higher frequency prescribed drug includes the number one go-to for ADHD. This is where there's that big overlap again. So this is where we're seeing Adderall, Concerta, Focalin, Ritalin, you name it. Any of these are an amphetamine or a methylphenamine or um, some form of a stimulant drug which can drive appetite uh, issues, uh, depressed appetite, sleep problems, tics, restlessness, depletion of mitochondrial nutrients and neurological toxicity. And I think the reality is like no parent wants to start their child on one of these things. And, and so let's talk about, you know, maybe well, I would say Becky, to be honest, um, being from when I practiced in Houston and, you know, we were in like an, a pocket of really prestigious parents, I will say, honestly, there's this misperceived, I believe uh, idea of competitive advantage of mm, having a stimulant legally prescribed to your child. Um, I mean, I remember from my college days, which were a while back, if there was a big, um, so this was like in the early 2000s, and I think Adderall hit the market in like the mid-90s or something like that, but I remember it was like the hottest thing on campus, like, oh, oh yeah. I have to cram, I need an Adderall, <laughs> it's a competitive edge. And and so I think that's concerning, and we I really want to share that they aren't these um, passive, harmless compounds, that they really can burn the body out for sure. Yeah, I guess what I should say is knowing all those side effects yes. and, and how they could result, you know, hopefully no parent wants to start that as a first line of defense. Especially because there's these nootropics and mm -hmm. cognitive enhancers that also tonify the body yes. and make the body yes. more resilient and support the immune system and aid in detoxification. But we'll, we'll get there in a yes. moment. <laughs> um, what about maybe some of the less harmful pharmacological interventions in research? I know oxytocin and melatonin have been kind of thrown around a little bit. Yeah, and I was excited to see these in that comprehensive research study. Uh, and, you know, what's interesting is that's probably because, Becky, these aren't pharmacological interventions. These are biological mm -hmm. compounds that the mm -hmm. body makes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, although it wasn't a pharmacological review, uh, there was really fantastic findings on oxytocin, uh, which plays a big role in, as we've talked in past episodes, trust. So when oxytocin levels are elevated, they actually saw in enhanced relationship formation, improved social functioning in both humans and adults in research studies, and they were able to see the impact of the oxytocin also aiding in um, meaningful connection, long, prolonged eye contact, enhanced touch, and less stimuli issues. And then with melatonin, uh, that was brought in because of the sleeplessness from the drugs. Um, so not as a drug on its own, but as a coping mechanism based on the side effect. And they did see, though, that three milligrams a day was safe in a study for children, uh, 160 children aged four through 10. And they did see this to be an effective tool to aid with um, sleep habits when they reassessed the questionnaire. So 85% improvement with use of melatonin. Yes. And then I know there are some naturally nourished tools that we'd want to add on here, but I think let's first just go into a little bit more root cause exploration. So seeing ADHD on the rise and, and what do you feel like are some of the causes um, that we can actually use to find a solution? 
Sure. So I think there's both the combination of stimulus and environmental change and behavioral, as well as then, you know, functional root causes influencing the biochemistry of the body, if you will. And so more behavioral environmental, I think the first thing we'd have to hit on is the screen time and the stimulus. So looking at things that have blue light this is going to create a dopamine depletion or dopamine surge, which then creates perpetual dopamine levels in the brain, which can interfere with that really delicate glutamate and GABA response in our neurotransmitters and and just neurotransmitter drive and imbalance overall. And this is worsened if we're talking about reward mechanism games like video games that also have really loud noises or a competitive element, which would be addictive in itself. And we see that this is where we can have a lot of the behavioral issues is with that screen time addiction, which I think is really important to call out because we're opening up this possible world of to keep our kids in air quotes safe, doing some schooling at home instead of all in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And that means much more screen time that they're going to be, you know, inundated with. Totally. And I know that's an area with Stella that you've been really intentional about, you know, providing um, certain parameters around screen time and then finding, you know, toys that are not um, EMF or, or don't have blue light that she can play with at other times. Yeah. So she actually has a, she calls it her tablet. She has two things that she calls a tablet, which neither of them are tech. They're pretty old school. <laughs> Eventually she'll get made fun of. Yeah. One of them is a me reader. Um, which I can put a link for my Amazon store, uh, you know, and me reader actually is keeping with the times where they're like, they have the Paw Patrol me reader and Disney princesses and X, Y, Z. And it's, you know, just a battery. Both of these are battery devices, so they're not going to use any EMF. And, uh, this has only just a, a little red light that when you're on the clickable icon of the story, but otherwise no lights, it's just like a cardboard screen. And it basically just reads to you the story as you turn the page with like a little bell. And so she's not seeing a lot of blue light, no blue light actually, zero blue light in that device. And then the other one is uh, through, I think it's called Leap. It's like the um, Leap. Pad Violet and Scout yeah, are like okay. the dogs that have the technology in them, but the Leap Pad, yeah, um, kind of tablet deal. This is a gray and black screen, so it's like the old school, <laughs> like first ever handheld Tetris kind of vibe. And um, it has, you know, like some spelling games and sounds and, you know, like, okay, it starts to show maybe a snake and it'll say like, push the letter that this animal starts with. And it like shows the snake getting built and then she pushes the S and it says, good job, S is for snake. And so I think that there's some element of, as a parent, to be able to have something that keeps them occupied. But I definitely also like to balance out things that are, you know, imagination play and more tactile. And so even of the world of screens, we still keep even that time limited. But yes, the highest priority are eliminating the EMF um, or also the blue light. Totally. And I imagine that getting harder for older kids who are, you know, more video game centered or have gotten into that world. And now all their textbooks are on, you know, devices and all things. Yeah. And so at least one of the things we can do for all the screens in the household is adjust the blue light Mm -hmm. filtration. And so you can adjust the color in the settings of your computer. You can also adjust the brightness of your computer, which are both really important. And then blue blocker glasses. I think if your child has to use a screen for school, you know, you can either lay on a filter screen on top of that as a protector that also has that blue blocking capability. And then, you know, consider the use of blue blocker glasses on top of that. That'll at least mitigate the impact on the neurotransmitter hit from the central nervous system of that really bright blue stimulant. And then, yes, just adjusting the screen times as much as possible. And again, another kind of with this, without that, the the kids that are doing more of the screen time tend to have more socialization issues. Um, They're not getting outside and playing. And then that hits some of these root cause biochemical things like the microbiome. Mm -hmm. Um, their gut susceptibility to allergens and food sensitivities. So let's unpack those. Yeah, let's talk down the rabbit hole of kind of nutrient interaction and um, both allergies and food intolerances being drivers of behavioral issues. 
Yes, and we see this widely, especially in children that had a, a serious use of antibiotics, uh, children that had tubes in their ears and had a lot of ear infections. We can see that their gut lining gets compromised and the diversity of their microbiome gets compromised. So this twofold can lead to enteropathy or basically wear and tear and damage to the gut lining. And then we see larger food proteins or particles from the foods that the child is eating crossing into that gut-blood barrier, and that also can often cross into the blood-brain barrier, interfering with the function of the frontal lobe. And so when we're talking about concentration, focus, and cognitive function, leaky gut and food sensitivity should really be one of the first places we start, especially if the child has known immune hindrance, like susceptibility to a lot of infection, has been on antibiotic, has dermatological concerns like eczema or some form of dermatitis, GI symptoms, uh, or bloating and distension. All of these would be higher time to really prioritize working with the gut. Yes, and I know we've addressed, you know, in past episodes on food sensitivity, the MRT test, which would be a really great tool for identifying specific intolerances, inflammatory reactions to foods and chemicals. Um, but what about just kind of basic starting points? What about the anti-anxiety diet and, and some of that overlap? Yeah, I mean, I would say start there first because it's going to hit the, the biggest drivers. So, you know, the ones that I say for the children through adulthood of ADHD and autism, the top players I would say are corn, gluten, dairy, soy, and sugar. And those are the five that I demonize in the anti-anxiety diet. And I would say maybe even more so corn, gluten, dairy, and then, you know, really watch that blood sugar control. Um, the big idea there, again, is that these blood sugar spikes and crashes are going to exacerbate the mood irregularities, the irritability, the drops in energy, as well as the hyperactivity, the brain fog, concentration issues altogether. And like I said, even in individuals that don't deal with autism or ADHD, we can experience this. So if you're already hindered on a neurological level, you're going to get that symptom exacerbated from just the blood sugar control alone. And often I find parents, you know, that really want to go into from diagnosis, all the advanced lab testing. And it's like, well, if your kid is still eating Mm M&Ms or if your kid is, you know, eating gummy snacks and XYZ, let's start with some serious carb control and let's start with eliminating corn, gluten, and dairy and just focus on like tunnel vision, that avenue. And chances are you are going to see huge outcomes. And I would layer in because of the research we see with food dyes and hyperactivity, all of the food colorants. Um, But, you know, to get to the level of reactions of like capsaicins and black pepper and garlic may be very well warranted, but may also be overwhelming for a parent and then, or, or the individual themselves to employ, and then they may not get anywhere in their food as medicine journey. So I really say let's lay the foundation of those top five inflammatory ingredients first. Totally. And, and really depends on starting point for the kiddo as well. You don't want to just swap, you know, the M&Ms for another processed crappy snack that just doesn't have the, you know, elements that you were reactive to on the MRT, but might still have other elements of, of blood sugar imbalancers and things like that. Just go for the salmon jerky. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, what about other priorities of balancing blood sugar? I know pairing carbs with protein and or fat is one that we talk about all the time when we talk about glycemic control. Yes. So I would also, I would recommend in the anti-anxiety diet cookbook, phase 1.5 for the children to start on. And if an adult, they could start with phase 1.5 and then work their way into really a phase one. And depending on autism spectrum, it may be appropriate to bring that child into a phase one as well, just like we would use a tighter ketogenic diet for epilepsy and, you know, really managing grand mal seizures and such. So the phases of the anti-anxiety diet are varied based on the total carb control. And we would generally, say keeping total at 75 grams of carbohydrates a day would be a good entry point. And then depending on the weight and the growth pattern and the activity factor of the child that may be adjusted, but that'd be a good anchoring place, which would really mean like all meals would be maxed at 30 grams of carbs. 
And like you said, Becky, yes, anytime the child has a carbohydrate, like an apple, or, you know, if they are doing any form of like a starch product, we'd want to make sure that that was paired with a protein or healthy fat. This gets a little bit tricky when we're still managing dairy-free because we can't use like a cheese stick with ease or we can't go for Greek yogurt. Um, You know, instead we're going for things like nut butters and we're going for avocado and we're going for protein like our chomps beef sticks and such. And I will say out loud that that throws an extra caveat to do the nut-free schools, Mm -hmm. which, you know, that's one of our favorite healthy fats. So you may start this type of diet approach with dairy and then get the carb control going and then do a six-week elimination period of dairy to see if dairy is an influential player in, you know, you or your child's uh, neurological function as far as brain health and and mood and behavior, because that may be one that's moderately tolerated and in the sense of nut-free schools, that might be a better option than like the processed vegetable straws, which, you know, are pretty much just going to be, well, those would have corn in them, so that wouldn't Mm -hmm. fit the bill, but still, you know, they're really just like a potato chip with kale speckles. Yep. (laughs) Yep. So it doesn't have to be all or nothing all at once. And there's definitely ways to kind of ease the kiddos into it, depending on what else you guys are working with. Um, And then on the concept of the gut and discussing, you know, food sensitivities and and intolerances, let's talk here about dysbiosis as well, because I think that's a huge player. Yeah. And most definitely, again, if the child had cradle cap or had a lot of ear infection or was treated with antibiotics, because we can see that candida or yeast overgrowth or really any form of gut pathogen can release upwards of 70 toxins with that process of you know die off and cell turnover and it's the toxins that are released from the dysbiosis that really severely interfere with the brain and neurotransmitter function so you know when we see this overgrowth in the body i think a lot of people don't realize that it's not just in the gut that this can cross the blood brain barrier and that can have a huge impact on our neurotransmitters and as i've talked in past episodes and we'll just reiterate here it's the presence of your your gut bacteria, your microbiome balance that actually produces the majority of your neurotransmitters. So when we're talking about mellowing out the child, you know, some of those secondary drugs for autism are SSRIs. Um, or we do look at the world of, you know, dopamine as a big contributing factor. So we're looking at things like Wellbutrin. And so when we're looking at drugs that influence a receptor site, starting with the gut that produces 80 plus percent of our serotonin based on our bacteria population, lactobacillus and bifido, is going to be the first place to start. And sometimes you do have to plow that gut if there is dysbiosis or overgrowth of yeast because that is going to create a battle environment if you try to then bring in that probiotic. Totally. And and so doing, you know, a probiotic challenge would be appropriate. And then let's talk about maybe elements of a, a cleanse and things that would be appropriate for children. Yeah. So I wouldn't do the beat the bloat cleanse as we have on AllieMillerRD.com, you know, as that protocol for a child until they get to the weight, uh, until they get to 10 pounds or 50, excuse me, 10 years old. <laughs> like, wait, that's a, that's a very that's tiny baby. Um, <laughs> until they get to the age of 10 years old or so and are at 50 pounds or greater. That's the first time I'd consider, you know, using the beat the bloat protocol. But really more ideal, I would say, for an individual that is closer to 65 pounds and over. Otherwise, we'd have to really adjust the dosage. Um, When we're looking at kids, though, you can safely use caprylic acid and berberine in children starting at 20 pounds. And so this can be, you know, really toddler and we can get really fantastic clinical outcomes. And that can be early on, right, as you're looking at kind of that diagnosis age, again, especially if we saw intolerance. But the first line of defense would be to get the kids on a quality probiotic. I, I just can't say loudly enough from the rafters that Please, 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 if you're considering putting your young child on a medication, please ensure that you've done at least a three to six month trial on a quality probiotic like the kids biotic and a quality multi-mineral, you know, foundational supplement like the kids uh, multi-avail because we really want to ensure that we're giving them at least that leg up of the foundational players that help their neurochemistry. Totally. And then beyond the gut... 
Um, we've hit blood sugar control, leaky gut, food sensitivities, and now dysbiosis. Let's talk heavy metal toxicity because I think that's really a common area in both ADHD and, and autism that we look to. Yeah, we see it in, you know, like one out of seven on average individuals with ADHD tend to have lower pH, um, which speaks to some acidity in their blood. And that tends to define with calcium deficiency often based on a another mineral creating toxicity in the body so displacing that calcium level if you will and this is important because calcium plays a role in calming our nervous system and heavy metals work as a systemic toxin that upregulate this fight or flight response or epinephrine adrenaline response and can be an excitotoxin for our cells so it can drive this neurological burnout essentially Sure. And, and with a diagnosis of autism or ADHD, would you go right for chelation therapy or activated charcoal or something like that? Or where would you start first? Yeah, I wouldn't actually, because that could further deplete minerals in the body. And so that would be concerning because generally these children are already low in calcium and, and even greater, the mood stabilizing mineral magnesium, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, and especially some of those really hefty chelators like EDTA, um, you know, this is widely experimental and may yield more harm than benefit in the child. I would definitely preemptively give them antioxidant support. And I would, if an adult or again, a child that fits that age of, you know, 10 or older and definitely above 50 pounds, but closer to like the 65 pound range, they could do the 10 day detox, which would be a beautiful reset for their brain and body. Um, but I would definitely intervene with cellular antioxidants across the board for autism and ADHD as one of my first line of defenses because we're just seeing so much study on glutathione and autism. I linked a research review here which highlighted 39 different clinical trials and they did find significant clinical evidence for the involvement of the gamma glutamyl cycle and transsulfuration pathways in autistic disorders and they found a significant outcome when glutathione therapy in the form of NAC, so high-dose N-acetylcysteine, um, as well as glutathione supplementally taken with the S-acetylated form. And they did see clinical outcomes of irritability scores reduced by upwards of 80% in this population. So when we're talking about our cellular antioxidants, we're providing a gram of the N-acetylcysteine along with a potent dosage of, I think it's 500 milligrams of the S-acetylglutathione and high dose B6, which we'll get to in a moment, which is a huge breakthrough nutrient. We usually think of magnesium and B6. We're kind of the first players on the mark with omega-3s as a tool for ADHD and autism. And we're still seeing that supported today. Yeah, super cool. And I know with Stella, you've been using a glutathione cream, I feel like since a very early age and, and more recently are incorporating the cellular antioxidants like in bites of food. Yeah, most definitely. So we'll link the cream as well. Um, and Stella was GST1. And so genetically, she is predisposed to be depleted in glutathione. So again, these are things that we can do preemptively to support our child before even dealing with a complication or a symptom that they would be predisposed potentially to experiencing by working upstream. And I can't tell you how frustrating it is because when I was gathering uh, research for these notes, I looked at the Journal of Pediatrics updated stance or like position paper and one of their highlights bullets Becky was um, no evidence has been shown of high dose vitamin mineral or supplement therapy in the use of treatment or management of symptoms mm. <laughs> of mm. autism spectrum <laughs> disorders and it was like but I, you'll see in my uh, notes, these are clinical trials, a lot of them randomized clinical trials, and we are seeing efficacy and we aren't seeing the side effects. So it's just so frustrating when we're looking at funding of who puts information in front of your practicing physician. Totally. So it seems like supporting the detox process and really working more so to replete nutrient status as opposed to chelating, which, you know, really could exacerbate malnourishment and mineral deficiency across the board. Um, beyond calcium as, as a calming mineral that's often associated with anxiety and, and 
insomnia and things like that. Um, let's talk about magnesium and kind of cover some highlights of that and some other nutrients of focus. Sure. So magnesium is a cofactor, as I always love to share, of 300 plus enzymes in the body. And it plays a big role in our neurotransmitters that affect our social relations and our emotions. We have seen clinically from um, your red blood cell magnesium, which is a good assessment of storage, that autism individuals or autistic individuals have low levels of magnesium. And we've seen that there is improved effectiveness of B6 therapy when paired with magnesium. And we also see the connection of magnesium on neuromuscular control when we're talking about tics and hyperactivity and irritability and short fuse. So this is usually my go-to as far as, like I said, kids biotic and your multi-avail kids are like the first line defense. Just, just put your kids on that because it's going to help them with all the things, their immune system, cognitive function, behavioral, you name it. We see, have things like zinc in there, which can help to support anxiolytic effects. But the next kind of layer on thing that I would bring in would be the relax and regulate um, because this is that magnesium bisglycinate, which provides a really potent delivery for this cofactor function of the neurotransmitters and just has the wide, most widespread research to support its clinical evidence and use. And I know the inositol in there as well. I don't know if we're going to get to that. Um, I haven't read ahead in this part, but um, inositol as well has been shown to have beneficial outcomes in ADHD and tics and behavior in kiddos too. As well as sleep. Yep. Depth yep. and quality of sleep. <laughs> so, you know, parents will say, oh, I gave my two-year-old a teaspoon of the relax and regulate. Is that okay? And how long can I do this for? And I'm like, yes, it's okay. And you can do it indefinitely. <laughs> um, because these are, again, nutrients that the body requires for optimal function. So we're not down-regulating or up-regulating these blockades of pathways or working on these receptor sites that could drive undesired side effects. We're truly working with what the body knows what to do with and understands and what the body requires. So totally different perspective. Um, yeah, so the world of B vitamins, inositol is kind of seen as like a cousin to the B vitamin family. Within the B vitamins, there's a lot of research because we know that B vitamins serve as cofactors. Um, B6 is one, though, that I really want to call out in today's episode because we've seen high-dose supplementation of B6 as effective as Ritalin for ADHD, and this is probably due to its mechanism of elevating serotonin levels. It is a cofactor for that 5-HTP conversion into activated serotonin. And it plays a role both with serotonin and dopamine. It plays a role in um, supporting with autism research. They've seen better eye contact. Um, they've seen uh, fewer self-stimulatory behaviors. And they've seen breakthrough in socialization with use of high-dose vitamin B6. Um, and this would be a consideration to bring in the B-complex as a supplement recommendation because that also includes things like choline, which is a precursor to the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. And this regulates our memory focus and our hyperactivity and muscle control. We also see B12 in there and folate in a methylated form because methylfolate plays a big role with our neurotransmitter regulation. And we can see the folic acid in the processed foods really causing destruction in this neuropathway. And so this is another reason to pull out all of those synthetically re-enriched processed snacks, which start with any flour ingredient, which are going to have folic acid, and that's going to interfere with those folate pathways. Totally. And I think this population, we do see a really high instance of that MTHFR mutation. So all the more reason to do all of those things. Yes. Oh, highly, I would say for certain. And then along the idea beyond, you know, cellular antioxs, uh, vitamin C is one that we've seen really positive outcomes from because of its role with sensory motor skill scores, excuse me. And this has been in research studies with autistic patients and likely this is due to the interaction with dopamine synthesis so especially for the kiddos that are doing more blue light more screen time they would be a higher candidate of need for like the bio c plus 
And vitamin C, when optimized, has a strong sparing effect on glutathione. So again, taking us back to those clinical studies that we talked about with the NAC and uh, S-acetylglutathione, the vitamin C helps like that baby sister to hold up the lineage of those antioxidants. And just conceptually, oxidative stress creates cytotoxicity, excitatory freak out of the cells, and the cells turn over and die. And so when we're looking at antioxidants, we're looking to reduce the oxidative stress in the body, and that's hand in hand with the processed foods, which are going to deplete antioxidants in the body or be devoid of antioxidants. We get these in our phytocompounds. So we're looking at eating the rainbow from our fresh vegetables, fruits, nuts and seeds, and roots, um, and really getting that from our whole foods. Yes. And I know that BioC Plus, a couple episodes back, we also talked about how you can open those capsules up, put them in a bite of yogurt or smoothie or just about anything for the younger kiddos. Yeah. Those are very palatable. So those work really with ease to just mix into a bite of food. And then the last one I would call out, and this might be for the older population or especially those that are dealing with some serious fatigue and maybe neurological disorders that also have mitochondrial function, uh, myopathies, um, so like muscle breakdown and, and um, more um, neuromuscular tissue issues or connective tissue issues um, is carnitine. So we have seen actually L-carnitine um, to play a role with reducing hyperactivity. It improves social behavior and it can aid in fatty acid metabolism. And this is what we use in our boost and burn. So especially if the child or adult was on a stimulant, um, you know, one of those amphetamine uh, medications, the boost and burn might be a really good swap in during that time to give them that organic energy, help their body to use fat as fuel, and also support that socialized behavior. Totally. Um, And then we talked about melatonin and oxytocin already, but let's talk maybe about GABA and then also CBD, which we alluded to a little bit in the beginning of this episode. Sure. So these are more biological compounds than nutrients per se. Um, and we did see, you know, some of the drugs that they look at are in the, you know, gabapentin type approach as neurological anxiolytics um, that have that peripheral effect. And we do see that um, the gam- the GABA interaction with glutamate and the signaling between those two, GABA being inhibitory and glutamate being excitatory, that there's often imbalance in individuals with autism as well as ADHD, but really remarkably in autism and most of the spectrum disorders. So it's this uh, balance between inhibitory and excitatory signals. Now in the diet, reducing MSG is extremely important. And this kind of goes hands in hand with the idea of the uh, food dyes because those are often in things that have other excitatory, um, you know, hyper palatable flavor enhancer compounds. And especially if something has M- MSG or monosodium glutaminate, this is likely going to increase that um, glutamate, which is going to be the excitatory. And that individual would then further need GABA. Also, though, if the diet is already clean and more of a paleo approach, using bioidentical GABA, like the GABA Calm chewable tablets that we have, would be a very good intervention because this is going to give that inhibitory, mellower outer compound that can help the brain get into the zone. It can aid with concentration and focus. We've seen clinical studies on GABA to actually enhance cognitive acuity. Um, I have surgeon patients that use it because they notice less tremor and they notice less um, agitation and more concentrated focus. Uh, I definitely take GABA before I public speak. And um, we talked in Stella's birthday episode that we gave us to her before her birthday party. And Stella really is not a really anxious um, or neurologically stimulated child overall. She's pretty chill. So we don't use it frequently with her. But if I was dealing with those types of episodic um, behavioral um, considerations or if she was on management of consideration of drug therapy, that would definitely be a clinical tool that I would use regularly. Totally. And a really good thing to use for rough transitions with kiddos as well, or maybe when they're doing something that's out of their normal routine. Yes. And then CBD oil, as I promised, um, there has been just small research studies on CBD oil. 
So one study looked at 53 children um, at a median age of 11, and they saw that there was a reduction by 67% of self-injury and rage attacks. They saw hyperactivity symptoms improved at 68%, and then they also saw that sleep uh, problems improved in 71%. So I'd say pretty good clinical um, outcomes there, and there were no adverse effects. Um, there was a mild change in appetite, but was less effect than was seen with the drug counterparts. Super cool. And again, an area of emerging research where you might want to go down your own rabbit hole, you know, before giving to your kiddo, but I think could be a tool with very little, if any, adverse outcome. Yeah, I mean, and the big thing is coming down to the understanding of something that the body naturally makes. So we have yep. an entire endocannabinoid receptor system in our body that regulates inflammation and in our central nervous system bilaterally. So there, there has to be something to mm -hmm. it. So if something is, you know, we make, we've talked about in the breastfeeding episode that breast milk has high amounts of CBD in it. And so we know that CBD is a nurturing compound that has immune support and anxiolytic benefits. So same with GABA, you know, this is something that the body naturally produces. So it makes sense to me clinically to start with things that the body is used to having circulating, but based on that child's microbiome, based on a stressed birth process, based on a genetic SNP or mutation, they may be prone to a deficiency in this compound. So you're giving them a leg up versus working downstream and trying to just symptom manage. Sure. Or giving them a, a stimulant with a ton of other side effects for sure. Yes. Okay. So beyond um, supplement support, maybe let's talk about that a little bit, just the dreaded wean off of Adderall or other stimulants. Yeah, let's do that yeah. now. I yep. feel like that's the burning question that yes. a lot of How people do we have. get off them? <laughs> yeah. So I think we first need to kind of define the problem a little further. Um, and I think it's interesting because people get the perception because it was prescribed by a doctor that it's again, safe and that they quote unquote need it. Um, not that it's just managing an imbalance in their body. And, you know, they are essentially speed, all of the amphetamine families. And so no one has a physiological deficiency of speed, <laughs> just to yep. be very clear. <laughs> um, you don't have a deficiency for methamphetamine. And uh, all of these do serve as a central nervous system stimulant, and they can have a wide range of effects on the body. Um, they can be extremely dangerous if not taken under medical supervision, and they are a class a Schedule II controlled substance for this reason. Um, you know, children that are taking Adderall should be monitored very carefully. And there are considerations of hypertension and tachycardia. These are the very common side effects. Tachycardia would be a fast or rapid heart rate. Um, I remember honestly, and I know it's like, oh, well, the, the probably less than five times that I've ever had Adderall, my college experience being the first time I ever took it, I was like, oh my gosh. Cause I had a best friend that took it daily. And I was like, this is what she feels like. I feel like I'm going to die. Like, I feel like I, I felt like I could hear my heart rate. Oh yeah. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. I was like, I can't believe people manage their days like this. Um, so I can relate to that, I guess. Um, confusion, headaches, and hyperactivity, nausea, and lack of appetite, which I see significantly clinically as a concern in the, in the kiddos. Um, my kid just won't eat breakfast. Um, well, you know, it's because their medication is interfering with their mm -hmm. natural appetite. And then we can see severe stuff like rhabdomyosis, myelitis, where there can be really severe atrophy in the musculature system. Um, we can see hallucinations and panic. And then what I see commonly that isn't really expressed in a lot of medical literature is adrenal insufficiency and burnout because that amphetamine is a stimulate, a stimulant, excuse me, to the HPA access. You're constantly ringing the bell and whistle of something to survive, right? And so your adrenals are constantly responding. Cortisol levels are going to over time get depleted, and that's going to further exacerbate with the aldosterone, the blood pressure regulation of the system, as well as the neurotransmitter balance. Remember, the adrenals make dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine. And so once we see that burnout, then we can see histamine and tolerance. Then we can see chronic inflammation. We can see more significant bloating and GI stress and the list just goes on. Yes. Anytime I test an adult patient and who's been on these drugs for a long time or is still taking them, they always look like a flat little line of their cortisol. And usually they do have burnout on um, dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine as well. It's just all kind of flat. 
And many of them, unfortunately, the next line of defense is an antidepressant Mm -hmm. drug to layer on because of the neurotransmitter implications. So the first layer of defense that I go to as like the one swap out would be the adrenal support glandular. Um, So for an individual that is dealing with adrenal insufficiency or is, um, you know, on some of these stimulants, the adrenal glandular is going to give you adrenal gland with high dose B6. It's actually 25 milligrams, which is 1400 um, percent of your daily recommended need. Pantothenate, which is uh, B5 and B2 riboflavin in that glandular adrenal support blend. And um, that can be used as well as our entire adrenal rehab bundle. So the adrenal glandular could be cut for kids um, into smaller pieces if they're dealing with chronic fatigue once you've weaned them off, but I would not bring it in on a child in conjunction with. Now for adults that have been on for a long term, they can definitely handle bringing in the adrenal support while weaning off of the Adderall. And then the BioC Plus um, is going to be really supportive in this process because it does, again, reduce that oxidative stress. Also, we know of all of the glands in our body, we store the most vitamin C in our adrenal glands, so very tonifying and supportive for cortisol regulation and rebound. And then the Adaptogen Boost, which is in the Adrenal Rehab Bundle. So it's those three things, Adrenal Support, BioC Plus, and Adaptogen Boost. And this would be a great wean bundle, especially for like preteen all the way through adulthood. And then with kiddos, like I said, you could kind of spot these in, and it would just depend on the longevity of the formula that they've been on and that whole process in coordinating with their um, prescribing practitioner. Um, but generally for an adult, um, you know, you can basically go every other day and then half the next week, and then off. Um, And that tends to be fine when you're supporting yourself with the adrenal um, support glandular. And um, you may even layer in B12 boost for the energy or that boost and burn Mm -hmm. if you're hitting the wall because you were addicted to speed. So you're basically having to get yourself out of the gutter from that. And um, your mitochondria, your energy factories of your cells will thank you later from the constant depletion, but you will likely hit that fatigue wall in that process of transition. Yep. And definitely not something you want to do completely cold turkey or all at once. I think those supports are are great recommendations. Yeah. And I want to share a little bit on adaptogen boost because I think that this is really a best first line of defense um, that we can use safely, especially in that population again of uh, being at 50 plus pounds. Um, The three ingredients in there, cordyceps, rhodiola, and ginseng, Cordyceps has been shown um, to be a strong antidepressant. Um, It's a fantastic ally to those with autism, which might benefit um, from also the ADHD tool of cordyceps. And I'm linking some research in the notes here. And then rhodiola has expression on dopamine and norepinephrine levels. And these are often deficient with ADHD. So there has been studies that have looked at um, the rhodiola and the mechanism of its ability to activate that that system um, and improve the levels of dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. And there have been randomized clinical trials using the rhodiola. So I thought that that was really powerful. Rhodiola and B6 are those that they've actually compared to um, the medications and have seen really fantastic clinical outcomes. They looked at the rhodiola on effects of mental health conditions, mental performance, and physical performance in high school students, college students, and military um, cadets. And they saw clinical outcomes improving attention, accuracy, and memory, and memory, excuse me, as well as um, antidepressant effects. So I think that's like the college go-to yeah. <laughs> adaptogen boost, <laughs> um, and you know, really letting your kiddos that may be transitioning into college know that there are some really severe dependency burnout tools out there that you know are often under the the safe. Um, uh, veil, if you will, of, oh, well, this is something that I take daily. My doctor prescribed it. Well, if you don't have ADHD, your body is not going to do well with one of these stimulant drugs. And if you do have ADHD, your body is not going to be supported. It's going to be coping with better, but eventually driving towards burnout. I wish I had known that in college. I think it could have saved me some real uh, panic attacks, <laughs> panic attacks and <laughs> damage to my adrenal glands. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. So I think we kind of covered broad food stuff and I'm I'm not going to go deep into food today other than the idea that we really, in order to keep those carbs in, in 
the ideal range of less than 75 grams a day, we really need to ensure that at all meals, we're feeding ourselves and our children fat and protein. And that's just so essential. Eggs need to get back on the breakfast table. If your child will not eat eggs, check out all of my nut flour muffin recipes, which incorporate eggs. And you can also add in a scoop of grass-fed whey to the batter. You can do the same with my almond butter pancakes, which are fantastic, um, You know, providing three eggs in each batch. With You could also add in that grass-fed whey, which gives you a good boost of that N-acetylcysteine and glutathione. Smoothies at the breakfast table could be fine, where you add in greens and berries and full-fat coconut milk in the grass-fed whey. And if you do realize a dairy sensitivity, generally grass-fed whey is still okay, but if it's not tolerated, you could use collagen peptides, and that would be a fine protein replacement. But try to get 20 grams of protein at your primary meals for your child. So that breakfast and that anchoring dinner, and then you know lunch is kind of survival snackable with whole foods like bell peppers and maybe a little bit of um, hummus if it's a nut-free school, because you could still do that with the tahini, um, doing little deli wrap um, roll-ups with nitrite-free meats. What are some other good ideas of quick grab and goes? Guacamole and um, dippers of uh, carrots work really well. Yeah, any of the meat stick type of snacks. And we've got a whole blog on school lunches that I will link as well. That's been updated semi-recently and, and definitely still stands the test of time. Even, you know, if your kiddo will do like hard-boiled eggs, that could be, um, it might be a point of contention. Uh, but if they're into it, you could do hard-boiled eggs or something like that as well. Yeah, and, and the same goes for the like little Epic Bites. That's a brand mm-hmm. that we use of the wild salmon jerky. Stella does a lot of grass-fed burger patties left over. And, uh, you know, just ensuring that they always have that protein and that fat and then some color from their vegetables and fruits. And um, everything should be pretty groovy. But if you need support, go on over and check out the Anti-Anxiety Diet Cookbook, which is at least a kind of fast-paced, all-in-one comprehensive guide. And then if you want to get deep into the nerdy stuff, check out the Anti-Anxiety Diet, which is the nonfiction read. And that will provide you both of them um, have a gamut of recipes, 80 recipes in the cookbook and 40 in the nonfiction book. And then always the blog, which is over now at naturallynourishedrd.com. All right. Any closing thoughts on autism and ADHD and regulating behavior? I mean, I think we got all the big things that we don't have time to get into the behavior stuff per se, but listen to Stella's episode most recently. We'll link that in the show notes where we talked about mantra and mindfulness and also the one about healthy habits during stress. We talked a lot about rituals for your children and, um, you know, what is good habits for um, nighttime rituals and such. And the last two supplements I would call out just that I haven't had a chance to get to is because I get this in um, question a lot on DMs on Instagram, Calm and Clear and then an omega-3 fatty acid supplement. So we do see good clinical outcomes from an EPA DHA blend. EPA DHA extra would definitely be recommended for all. Now the capsules are, you know, a gel capsule. So for some kids may be difficult to get in. Um, And there are good liquid counterparts that I will link in the episode notes that have a good effective dose because we do see omega-3 fatty acids by reducing the oxidative stress in the brain. We have enhanced cognitive function. We have enhanced mood and focus and concentration. So that's a huge one. And get your family to eat fish three times a week, wild caught. And then calm and clear will be the last one I'll kind of harp on. So... You know, if your child is reactive right now, you might be starting with like the cellular antiox, the multi-avail kids, the kids biotic, the bio C plus, relax and regulate and GABA calm. Those are kind of the big ones I hit. And then if we're looking to wean off of the stimulants, it would be that adrenal rehab bundle. And if we're looking to stay concentrated and focused, it would be the adaptogen boost. But Calm and Clear is like my favorite regulator of mood and focus and concentration because it has things like that L-theanine in there, which aids with your alpha brainwave concentration and focus. Also, that's what's elevated during your REM cycles of sleep. Phosphatidylserine is in there. Also, taurine is in there. Um, These play a big role in regulation of our neurotransmitters, reduction of excess cortisol. There's a B-complex in there, so you could do that instead of taking an extra B-complex using the Calm and Clear in its place. And then you do get the nervine and adaptogenic herbs, which can also help with optimal testing scores and um, academia. And the Calm and Clear is one that is safe, you know, starting at really like six, seven, eight, as far as an 
age. And um, it is one that has a uh, interesting taste because of the valerian. It does, I think, do fine as far as mixed into food. But this would definitely be a first line before a pharmacological intervention as a recommendation, but maybe more of like a secondary or third after the nutritional pillars and some of those other tools that we mentioned. Absolutely. So, so much good information in this episode. And it sounds like there may need to be at some point a part two where we dig a little bit deeper into um, some additional food recommendations and, and some more emerging research here. Yes. But if you loved today's episode and you can't wait to get next week's dose of food as medicine, make sure you go on over to iTunes or wherever you're listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast and leave us a five-star review. We love putting out resources like this to support optimal health for you and your entire household. And always go on over to AllieMillerRD.com to check out all the things that we discussed in today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.